If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. And we're going to be looking really at uh, verses 13 and 14 this morning. So, there we read, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. We thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, that you really bless us, that we could focus on what you have said, and we pray that by your Spirit you would speak to us, write your word into our hearts and minds, we pray, and be glorified, and give us grace to glorify you. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul has been setting forth the great truths of the gospel in this section. As you know, he talked about predestination, the fact that God has determined beforehand uh, our salvation. He's determined who would be saved, those whom he has chosen, his elect, uh, and that they would be to his glory, and that through Jesus Christ, God would provide everything for them in the midst of their troubles and struggles. I mean, we saw that in Psalm uh 138, when we started the service, that uh, at the end, the last verse, he says, you know, you will perfect that which concerns me. Even in the Old Testament, the idea that this is God's work. Our salvation is not by works. It's by God's work. That is not works we have done, but according to his grace. And so Paul sets forth this, that we should be to the praise of the glory of his grace, uh, he says. And then he says that we should be to the praise of his glory. And here in, in verse 14, he says that. And uh, again in verse 12, he repeats that, that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and saved. And so in speaking of um, verse 12 of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory, in him you also trusted. Christ is the object of our faith. You know, I've spoken of this before. We give people a free ride, and sometimes ourselves, because... You know, if someone says, well, I love, I love, you're going to say, what or whom do you love? And if they say nobody in particular, uh, you'd have some problems. You know, love has to have an object for it to be real. I mean, you can go about and have a, you know, warm, mushy feeling in your heart and call that love if you want to, okay? You know, just, I love everything, love everybody, okay? Uh, that's great. Don't want to discourage that. If you're happy, that's fine. But love has an object. So does faith. And yet we let people and ourselves sometimes get a free ride because we say, I believe, I believe. And it seems sometimes just impolite to say, what do you believe or upon whom do you believe? And so we know that there is a body of truth, Paul speaks of it here, in which we believe. There's also a person who is that body of truth that all relates to him, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And in him we believe. <clears throat> Paul says this to the Ephesians. In him you also trusted after what? After you heard the word of truth. What a beautiful way to describe God's word. The word of truth. The message of the gospel. The inscripturated truth of God in the Bible. Uh, the proclamation of who Jesus Christ is. The word of truth. Everything is true. Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 
3.16, I believe, 15 rather. Uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, and the Greek word is theophnustos. Theoph is God. Nustos is the word for breath. It's God breathed. That is, you know, when you speak, your breath is what goes through your vocal cords, produces the sounds. God is a spirit, so we're not talking about that happening. But uh, the scripture is so intimately connected with who God is, it's referred to as coming forth from his own breath. It's from God's heart. It's the word that he spoke, that he gave us. And it is the word of truth. When Jesus prayed, you hear me quote this verse a lot because it means a lot to me. In John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Our sanctification depends upon being in lively and vital contact with the word of God and having it operationally at work in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who applies that. And then we're going to see that here also in just a moment. But after you heard the word of truth, so the gospel was preached to the Ephesians. Paul was there. He preached it to them. There's been, some believe there was a generation past. And so now Paul writes back to them. He reminds them, in whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth. You heard the gospel. That message is pure. You know, in the world, you just don't know. There's, you know, uh, this is a political year, you know, we're voting for candidates, we're looking at issues, a lot of things coming up. There's always a thing in the back of our mind, are these people being honest with us? When we listen to news broadcasts, and we kind of learn, you know, as uh, former President Trump, you know, coined the term fake news, we've encountered that, we see that, okay, and from the left and from the right sometimes also, there's a lot of fake news out there, okay, um, and so sometimes when we hear news and reports, there's a little bit of perhaps healthy cynicism that comes up. It's like, how do I know that's true? How do we know that we're being told what's really going on in various parts of the world? Sometimes we find out later, like, oh, wow, if I knew that, it would change my whole perspective on things. So sometimes it's hard to determine it. But when it comes to God's Word, you don't have that problem. The Word of God is just that. It is theophanousos. It's God-breathed. It comes from God. It is true. Yeah, if you, and if you want a really good encouragement in understanding that, read Psalm 119. Okay, David said, Your Word is true from the beginning. That's Genesis 1.1. You know, uh, one fellow said, Bible's true all the way from Genesis 1.1 all the way through concordance, if you want, or the maps in the back. If I want to stop at Revelation, that's actually where the inspired part stops. But God's word is true, every bit of it. And he's preserved his word. It's such an important thing that's lost in our generation. We've had so many people say, well, you know, now that we have better manuscripts and, you know, we can change the Bible until we see modern versions where verses are taken out. I've studied that stuff a lot. Let me tell you, what you got in front of you in the New King James or the King James, the old Textus Receptus that's been in use for thousands, over 1,500 years, um, and you know, the, the manuscripts it's based on. I guarantee you that God preserved his word jot and tittle. This idea that the New Testament was sloppily copied is a lie. And guess where it came from? The same one that said to Eve, Yea, hath God said? Throwing doubt on God's word. Because the devil knows if he can get you to doubt God's word and doubt the veracity, that's the $2 word for truth for you young folks, okay, and get you to doubt the veracity or the truth, we would say, of God's word, then that's great. All he has to do is just sow a little bit of doubt. Your Bible is believable because it is true. Okay? By God's grace, and I'm boasting, I can read Greek and I can read Hebrew pretty well. All right? 
The more I read Greek and Hebrew, the more I love my English Bible because I know it is faithful. And so, you know, I'll, you, I quote from the original languages a lot. You know that. You come here, you're going to get a Greek or Hebrew lesson. Probably today also. I've got a couple of choice things here in my notes. That's not to make you think that what you have in front of you in English isn't trustworthy. Your Bible is trustworthy. If you take an hour or two, come visit with me. We'll sit down, I'll go through and I'll show you that what you have in your English Bible and what's in the Greek and Hebrew is virtually identical. Okay? Hebrew does have rich words. So does Greek. So yes, you can get more out of the original languages. That's why we have books we can study. That's why we have that dictionary in the back of the strongest concordance, or most of you now have Bible apps where you can do that. It's important to know what the original words were. But your English Bible is faithful. It is true. It's a faithful translation. In the New Testament, they quote the Old Testament scriptures often in the Greek language, sometimes from what's called the Septuagint, which was the standard Greek translation that was current among Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles in the uh, uh, first century A.D. and B.C. and up until the time when the New Testament was completed. Well, why do I mention that? Well, because God approves of translations. Because you find them in the New Testament. Every Old Testament prophecy that's quoted in the New Testament is not quoted in Hebrew, it's quoted in Greek. So this idea that, well, you, you have to know the original language, no, that's not true. God blessed and uses translations. And the one you have in front of you, and like I say, I'm picky about them, you know that. Uh, I like the ones that are based on the old Hebrew Masoretic text, which has been around from the beginning, and the Greek Textus Receptus, which actually faithfully represents the text that was used at the Reformation and is based on thousands of manuscripts and is a good text. God has preserved his word. I want to dwell on that, just, like I say, just for this moment. The reason why I did is because that if you listen to people today, they'll say, well, we know the scriptures were inspired in the original autographs, but we don't have those, so we don't have a real inspired, infallible, inerrant word today. And it's like, are you serious? The words were inspired, not the parchment and the ink. Words can be transmitted. If you have a faithful copy of what John the Apostle wrote, or Matthew, Mark, or Isaiah, or any of those, if you have a faithful copy of those texts, of those words, 2,000 years later, what you have in front of you is absolutely 100% just as inspired as what was written the day when the ink was wet. God's word is inspired. Granted, the apostles, they were inspired uniquely to write it. So were the prophets. But God gave his word in such a way that it could be transmitted. And let me tell you something. You know, we think like, wasn't the old doctrine, though, that the scriptures are only inspired in the original uh, autographs, you know, the first handwriting? That's a new doctrine. B.B. Warfield came up with that about the year 1900, all right? Because he was trying to promote the Westcott and Hort textual theory. I'm not going to get into all of that right now. But he was trying to promote, you know, this modern critical text idea that scholars can go in and, because they know more, they can go in and find what the true word of God is, except they change it every time they make a new edition because it's based on rationalism. But Warfield, in order to promote that, said the Bible is inerrant. Actually, the old term was infallible. I mean, it was no mistakes. Inerrant is an astrological term that was used to describe the orbiting of planets around uh, the stars or you know the, the celestial bodies in their inerrant circling. But he took an astrological term and applied it to Scripture so he could come up with this new doctrine that the Scriptures were only inspired in the original uh, autograph and nothing since then has been inspired. 
And so you have evangelicals running around hither and yon trying to find a true word from God because they basically have been told they can't trust their Bibles because somebody might trip over a jar in Israel and find a new manuscript and have to change everything. All right? And it's all based on rationalism. God preserved his word. The Bible, Jesus said, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law until everything is fulfilled. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He said, every idle word that men speak, they'll give account thereof in the day of judgment. He said, the words that I say unto you, that's what's going to judge men. That means those words have been available in every generation. Whether men have accessed them or not is another question. If they've sought the Lord by His grace, they found it. Because no man seeks God unless God draws him, and he does it by his word and spirit. My point is, your Bible is true. The doctrine of preservation is taught in the old Westminster Confession. It says that by God's singular care and providence, they've been kept pure. That is the original language text in every age. And they are to be translated. That's the old doctrine. That's what the, the, you know, Rome came along and said, Oh, you Protestants, you can't trust your Bibles. You know, they're, they're all corrupted. Only the, the Roman church has the true Latin Vulgate translation that you need to base your faith upon. And we get that, you get that from the Holy Catholic Church and, you know, from the authority of the Pope, etc., etc. And the Reformers said, no, God has preserved his word. God promised to preserve his word. We have his word. And that's what they translated into the various languages of Europe. And that was the sword that hit the man of sin in the head and wounded him. Sadly, the wound healed, but... Uh, God's not finished with that project yet. Your Bible is true, the word of truth. Paul says, in him you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In case someone's, what do you mean word of truth? The gospel, the good news message. We can't always trust what we hear in the media these days. The news is not always reliable. God's good news is always reliable when it's based upon his revelation in scripture. The gospel of your salvation, you heard that. You believed once you heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Paul said. And it needs to be preached. How shall they hear without a preacher? It needs to be proclaimed. And so he says, in whom also having believed, once you came to saving faith, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God gave the Holy Spirit to you to work in you, to bring you, first he brought you to that saving faith, because we're told that, that's his work in you. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. If you believe in Jesus, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. When they ask Jesus, what might we do that we might do the, the, the works of God, or that we may do the works of God, and Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's at work in you. Do you believe in Jesus? If you can say, yes, I, I do. Well, praise God, because that's not something you did out of your flesh or when you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's something the Holy Spirit wrought in you, that is, did, accomplished, worked in you. When you heard the gospel, it didn't just bounce off your eardrum, it entered into your heart, and God used that call like when he called Lazarus forth. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, what happened? You, know, you can take your name and replace it with Lazarus in the spiritual realm and say, your name, and then come forth. That's what happened when you came to saving faith. And if you're not sure where you're at spiritually, then call on the Lord. Ask Him to work. You're not going to call on Him unless the Holy Spirit puts it on your heart to do so. You say, well, wait a minute. What, can I do it? Not by yourself, but if it, you, God puts the desire in your heart to call upon Him, that's not from you. That's from the Holy Spirit. The desires that we have, He works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, it says in Philippians. 
the willing part, that's, you know, that's usually the problem. We're not willing until God makes us willing. And when he does, well, like it says in Psalm 110, your people shall be willing in the day of your power. Uh, the New King James says, your people will be volunteers in the day of your power. Volunteer, that word is actually based on the Latin word for will. Uh, and you, what makes us willing? God's power. He changes us. So in him you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Bible has a lot to say about possessing, possessing the Holy Spirit, that is having the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the second part, he says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the idea of having the Holy Spirit operationally at work in you, by the Word of God, changing your heart, bringing you to love Jesus and to love others, changing you, if that's not going on, then you don't belong to Jesus. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Because if you've been born again, you've been sealed with the Spirit. The seal, by the way, that word is sregida uh, in Greek, and it means the mark of ownership placed upon you. That mark of ownership is the Holy Spirit in your life. Now we have the outward seals. We refer to the sacraments sometimes as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Uh, we do that based on what Paul said in Romans 4.11 when he referred to circumcision. When Abraham received it, he said he received circumcision as a seal of the faith that he had. God gave the seal of circumcision to be placed upon Abraham and his infant male offspring as a seal that Abraham was in covenant with God. That is, it was an outward seal. The Lord's Supper is a seal. In other words, it's a mark of ownership. It shows we belong to Jesus. Those are the outward seals. And sometimes, you know, unbelievers can be baptized. Unbelievers can partake of the Lord's Supper. So it's not necessarily a seal to them. It's actually they're eating and drinking judgment to themselves. But the inward seal, that only happens where regeneration or being born again occurs in the hearts of the elect when they hear the gospel. That's why Paul can say, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. But then he says, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Yeah, is your physical body is still subject to death so far. Okay. Uh, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ. And then he goes on and says, But if the Spirit of... Now, note, now, no, we refer to the Spirit of Christ. And then he goes on and says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you... Well, well, that's the Father. The Father raised up the Son. Well, Christ raised Himself also. The Holy Spirit raised up Jesus. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you... He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, that is, bring to life, your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. The Holy Spirit right now is your guarantee of, of full salvation. This is what Paul is saying. Uh, the Holy Spirit is in, a, in your life if you're a believer. Well, how do you know? Some will say, well, if you speak in tongues or if you have the gifts of the Spirit, that's how you can know. Not necessarily. There, you know, there's people that uh, claim to speak in tongues, and it can be questioned. I think, uh, and there's others that say, "Well, I have this power, this ability." Jesus had something to say about that uh, in Matthew chapter seven. If you want to turn there real quick, because here, here we see with gifts. By the way, the gifts of the Spirit are awesome. Okay, we're not knocking that. Uh, properly defined. They're, they're awesome things that God gives to us. 
But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. R.C. Sproul points out that doubling of the term Lord is a, uh, something when someone is uh, uh, professing intimacy with an individual. You know, when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, you know, etc. And speaking, you know, doubling the name. So, Lord, Lord, they're claiming here this idea, Lord, you, you know, oh, you, we have this intimate relationship with you. Uh, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, we already covered that in John's Gospel, didn't we? What is what might we do that we might do the works of God? Believe on him whom he has sent. But Jesus went on and said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Well, that could refer to prophetic utterance, or it could refer to preaching. Have we not prophesied in your name, or by your name? Cast out demons in your name, or by your name, it could be understood. And done many wonders in your name. They, they knew about the name of Jesus. It was a tool by which they displayed power, so they thought. And done, we've done all these things in your name. Almost like now you owe us. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus goes on and talks about hearing his word and doing it. It's the man that built on a solid foundation. Those who don't have built on the sand. So we see the gifts that are mentioned there at least. No guarantee of salvation. Well, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit in your life then? Well, how about the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians chapter uh, 5, at verse 16, if you turn back, probably a page if you're in Ephesians. In Galatians chapter 5, at verse uh, 16, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he describes the struggle that Christians experience often. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, that is, the desires of the flesh are contrary to the things of the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You desire to be godly, that's a sign of regeneration. Paul said, you know, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members uh, warring against the law of my mind. And so, uh, Paul says, we've got this struggle, and it keeps us from being what we ought to be and doing what we should be doing quite often. So he says, these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things of the Spirit. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The law doesn't condemn anything the Holy Spirit brings forth in your life. He's going to tell us what those first aren't and what they are. But he says, now the works of the flesh, in case you were wondering, are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, sexual sins primarily, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, Heresies. The word heresy actually means divisions, okay? Uh, dissensions, divisions. Envy, murders. You know, you can murder someone with your mouth without sticking a knife in their back, okay? Uh, and lots of times people have their reputations destroyed by others. Um, so don't be a murderer in word, and don't be one in deed either. But envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In other words, there's more than just this, but this, is, this list is sufficient, Paul is saying. But note what he says. Just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, that is, their life is marked by continuation in these types of sins, they've not repented, is what he's saying, 
those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there are a lot of professed Christians that are hoping Paul was lying here because they're not willing to break with the sexual sins of pornography, filthy thoughts in their mind, anger in their hearts, and all those things. And they're just assuming, well, I can commit heart adultery and it'll be fine, right? They're hoping God will make some kind of exception. Or they're thinking, I can go ahead and have a bad attitude and I can harbor hatred and a grudge and things like that. <clears throat> Paul says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He wasn't joking around. He wasn't saying, except for you because you're so special, you Galatians, okay? We, we're hoping to sometimes, but it's like, no, you need to repent of your sins. If, you're, if you've got a besetting sin in any of the areas Paul mentioned, you need to get on your knees and you need to start crying out. You say, yeah, I believe I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling. Good. That means you're alive. Okay? You know, you hook into a fish. If it's alive, what's it do? It fights. Okay? Hook into a dead one. No trouble at all bringing that one on. Who wants it, though, right? It's just a dead fish. Um, fish that are living, if you go to use, can follow through on that illustration. You look in a stream. Fish that are living, you usually point it into the current, looking for some food or something. Okay? The ones that are dead, they're just bobbing along. Everything's fine, except they're dead. Okay, people who are dead in trespasses and sin, they just get, they do great. They just go with the current in the world. Christians, they get in trouble because they they're facing into the current. They're saying, no, we're 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 going upstream, or we're you know we're not we're holding our ground here, or whatever. Being alive means things happen. If you look at a tree, how can you tell if it's alive or dead? Well, first you look for leaves. If it's a fruit tree, you expect to see fruit on it. Okay, so here Paul warns this, but then he says, but the fruit of the spirit. How do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? By the fruit of the Spirit. I can go hang Christmas ornaments on my plum trees at home, okay? And they'll look nice. They look at all the gifts I put on my tree. And, it, you know, and somebody could come along and say, well, that tree's dead. Yeah, but look at all the pretty ornaments I have on it. You, have go, you need to have fruit on a tree, okay? I don't need to hang ornaments on a tree that's producing fruit. The, the fruit on it is beautiful and good. Same way, the Holy Spirit, when He's at work in your life, and if you have the Holy Spirit, He will be bringing these things forth in your life. And by the way, if you know this, lean into it. If you know this is where God's taking you, then pray, Lord, bring this about in me. But the fruit of the Spirit is, not the first one, love. And that's the word agape. That's that unconditional love. Knowing God's love, and then responding to it, and loving Him, and loving others. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. Yeah, but I like being a sourpuss. You better get over it real quick, okay? There's there's a time for sorrow. The Bible says that, all right? God's not going to be angry at you if your heart's been broken. But there's a you know the, the Christian should be marked by joy even in the midst of tribulation. Because why? Because this is just temporary. We're passing through. We belong to Jesus. He's promised to deliver us from all our troubles. He's going to do wonderful things. We have joy in Christ. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah said, peace starts with the heart, conscience. The, the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called the sons of God. You know, So a person who has the Holy Spirit in his or her life will want to be at peace. They're not going to constantly be stirring up dissensions and heresies and strife. Long-suffering. You can't have this one unless you have people in your life that mess up sometimes. That's why you're at Grace Press, okay? God wants to bring forth long-suffering in your life, okay? That's why he gave me, you, uh, gave me to you as your pastor. So you'd learn long-suffering, okay? We need to learn long-suffering. Our children need to see it in us. We need to be patient. Generally, we can be patient with our families. 
sometimes. We need to work on these things. We need to be patient with each other. We need to trust God's work in us. Long-suffering, kindness. There's another one. You can't do that all by yourself. You know, if you're going to go become a monk or a nun and go live in a convent and not be around anybody, just be cloistered, you don't have to worry about long-suffering and kindness. You're not putting her up with anybody. The monastic movement basically got started uh, in the post-apostolic church, kind of at the beginning of the Dark Ages. That's the right term to describe that movement. Uh, the idea is that, well, we need to get away from those unwashed peasants down there in the village because they sin. So the idea, we'll just go here and, you know, stay by ourselves. You know, the uh, the Stellites or the, the guys that would sit on pillars uh, for years and years. And people, they'd have a little rope and people would put food in it. And they, they, but that way they were separate from all those sinners down there. Um, I remember the, the poem about, I can't remember all of it, but it's the village priest of austerity climbed up into the steeple that he might be nearer to God and hand his word down to his people. So not got a few more stanzas, but it ends by, uh, finally the voice came and he said, uh, the voice of God said, uh, come down and die. And the pious parson said, uh, where are you, Lord? And the answer was, down here among my people. <laughs> okay. Uh, so in putting up with one another, Jesus said, we're two or three gathered together in my name. I'm there in their midst. So you want to be in church. You want to be active in God's people. You want to be hospitable. Kindness. You know, and parents, your children are going to give you opportunities to show kindness because they're going to mess up. Okay. Other people, maybe not your kids, you're going to see somebody other's other kid mess up. You, you know, you have sometimes an opportunity to, to show kindness. Okay, such an important thing, and not just to children, but to uh, fellow adults. Goodness, that is doing what's right. Faithfulness, being a friend when the person's there and when they're not being there. You know, upholding the, the honor of each other as best as you can. Not listening to gossip and certainly not spreading it. Gentleness, kind of goes along with kindness, being gentle. Self-control, translate that, pretty simple. In one aspect, is learn to keep your mouth shut. Okay? Not everybody is entitled to a piece of your mind. And like one lady said to her husband, you keep giving away a piece of your mind, pretty soon you're not going to have any left. Um, so self-control, not just that, you know, it comes with the outburst of anger and everything. Learning to control yourself. I've preached sermons on this a lot, and to myself first. The whole Freudian concept of the 19th century and the 20th century, based on steam engine analogies, you've got to let off steam, you might blow a gasket, etc., etc., okay? Things are really heating up. It's all steam engine stuff. And so the idea is, well, if you need to say something to someone, you just let off steam. It's not healthy to hold that in. Let me tell you, it's very healthy to take it to Jesus and keep your mouth shut. If you are angry at someone and you want to go barf on them verbally, don't do it. And you'll be surprised what a wonderful feeling self-control is when you learn to keep your mouth shut. And you don't, you know, like you know, the one meme where it shows the guy and he goes, no, I think I could probably make this situation a little bit worse, you know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I get that, okay. Just learn to control your speech. Granted, you may be upset with someone. Mm, let's see, long-suffering, kindness, mm, okay. Uh, learn to take it to Jesus. Now, there is a time to speak to someone if they're doing something wrong. Paul said if a man's overtaken in a fault, verse uh, 1 of the next chapter, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love one another. 
So here we have self-control. Against such, Paul says, there is no law. And those who are Christ, that is those who have the Holy Spirit, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, they're, they're dealing with, they've dealt with it and are dealing with it. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of having the Holy Spirit in your life. We're to be filled with the Spirit. Paul said in Ephesians 5, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, encouraging each other. It's interesting because a parallel passage, instead of saying be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in Colossians 3.16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, that's not speaking to yourself. Look it up. Okay, it's uh, Ephesians five eighteen through twenty one and Colossians three sixteen. You can remember three sixteen, I'm sure. Uh, look it up. Speaking to yourselves, uh, plural, in our conversation, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it means encouraging each other, right? having God's word dwell in you richly. So being filled with the Spirit and having the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, they're parallel concepts. Read your Bible. Try to memorize it. Ask God to help you. Get it into your heart. Read it and keep reading it. Your life will improve, I promise, because God tells you that. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit to the point where it pours out of us in song and praise to God. And that doesn't make you a religious phony. That makes you a Christian. So you shouldn't be ashamed of that. And if somebody says, oh, you're one of those pie-in-the-sky guys, huh? You said, well, I probably do have pie in the sky waiting for me, but I also have a good life here by God's grace in the midst of my troubles. Paul said in um, Philippians 1.6, he said he was confident, he said, when he wrote to the Philippians, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was able to say in Ephesians 1.14, the Holy Spirit of promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit's been given to you as the guaranteed down payment. The, the Greek word there, it's interesting. The word is autobahn, or autobone rather, in Greek. And it's a, it's a Hebrew word. That's an actually literal Hebrew word that was used because it's a trade word. Because when Greeks and Romans traded with people in uh, Israel or Arabic-speaking areas, they would often lay down a pledge saying, I'll give you the full purchase price or price for the purchase upon delivery. Okay, That's the word Paul uses here. The word used actually in the Old Testament in uh, Genesis chapter 38, referring to uh, when Tamar told Judah, uh, when he said he was going to send her a goat, she said, well, what's the pledge that I'm going to get this? And so that's when he gave her his ring and some other things. Uh, she actually uses the word autobahn in the Hebrew, and that's what the word Paul uses here. It was a, so it's a Greek word, but its origin originally was, uh, was a Semitic word. And it means a guaranteed down payment. It's part of the payment. It's not, you know, they don't take it back. It, it's, it's the beginning of the payment. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you have the Spirit at work in you, that's God's guarantee to you. If you can say today, I believe in Jesus. I love the Lord. I, my love's flaky, but I know His isn't. I'm trusting in Him with all my heart by God's grace. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, He's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You're the purchased possession until your redemption. The Holy Spirit's been given to you. And also your inheritance. To 
to the praise of his glory. He gets all the glory and all the praise. Why? Because it's 100% his work. So Paul could say, uh, I have this confidence in him that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. If you believe in Jesus, that's God's grace. He's not going to abandon you. Now, at the time of your death, and when you step from this life, you're stepping into the presence of the Lord. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The writer of Hebrews refers to the spirits of just men made perfect who are now present before God in heaven. In Revelation, we see a clear picture of the souls that were under the altar and then crying out to God. It actually seems to be souls of the martyrs. But they were under the altar, meaning they're under the blood. And they're in heaven, and they were praying and praising God. And so God's going to complete that work. Why? Because he began it. Note that. Uh, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. So your job, you might say, is to just make sure that work has begun. Because if God has done it, if he started it, he, he's not like some men. He's not going to leave it undone. He's going to finish the work. Okay? A good worker, you know, we've got some good workers in our church. And one thing that's nice is that they finish the work they start. You know, and it, those of you, who, you know, if you, you labor, you understand that. Whether you own the business or you're working for someone, you know that it's important if you begin something to finish it. God does the same thing. If he starts a work, he's going to finish it. Uh, we quoted from the psalm, the Lord will perfect that which uh, concerns me. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll, we'll wrap it up here because uh, this is just a, a beautiful passage. Okay, uh, I do want to mention 1 Corinthians 1.8 where Paul said, God's going to confirm you unto the end that you might be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is referred to in Hebrews 12, too, as the author and finisher of our faith. He starts it, he's going to finish it. Jesus is the real Savior, 100%. Be encouraged. Whatever you're facing, whatever your troubles, you're in his hands. He's going to help you. You're going to get through it. And he'll be glorified. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, I want to conclude with this, at verse 23, Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that. And it was written down and has been faithfully transmitted and it is inspired and authoritative. Okay, God's doing this work. And Paul's prayer for them was that they'd be, note this, Spirit, soul, and body, every aspect of your being will be completely sanctified, that is, conformed to the image of Christ, made holy, removed from any presence or effects of sin. It's going to happen. How do you know that? Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. See that? He doesn't say he who calls you is faithful, so you better do it. He doesn't say that. If he said that, I'd be like, we're in trouble, okay, because we don't do it as we ought to. He's the one doing it. Faithful is he who he calls you, who also will do it. It's God's work. You are God's work. You're his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created by, by him under good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. He's at work in your life. Praise him. If you understand these things, if you listen today and you know what this means, I'm not asking you to like, you know, get a phony smile on your face and act like you're all spiritual. I'm saying look to Jesus. Meditate on God's love. Think about these things. Pray and ask God. Jesus said, you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your sons, he says, you know, if your son asks for 
a fish, you don't hand them a snake. And if you ask for bread, you don't hand them a rock. And he said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you're not sure where you stand on these things, ask him. Say, Lord, I want this. You're not going to want it unless the Holy Spirit's already at work in you. Kind of an enigma there a little bit, but it's, it's a, the, the right one to be struggling with, okay? If you have a desire and you say, Lord, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want to walk according to your word. I want to love you. I want to be used by you. Please help me. Deliver me from the you know, corruptions of my sins and my own folly. Get all those works of the flesh out of my life, Lord. I really love you and I want to love you more. I want to know you more, Lord Jesus. It's all about you. You're the one. I want to glorify the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you have that desire, then pray. Say, Lord, give me your spirit. Remember Elisha, when Elijah was getting ready to go back? What did he ask for? You know, he, Elijah told him, ask for anything you want. Elijah said, I, I want a double portion of your spirit. That is the spirit that's upon you. I want a double portion. Okay? He was greedy spiritually. Not because he wanted to have power over people. He wanted to be God's man for his generation. He wanted to serve the Lord faithfully. Beloved, be bold in going to the throne of grace. Ask God to give you the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Trust Him to do it. May he, he's going to give you a desire to read His Word and to memorize it. He's going to lead you in paths of righteousness for His namesake. And He's going to get all the glory, both now and through eternity. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you seal to our hearts and minds your Word this day. Forgive us our sins and bless us and keep us in your love and grace at this time. And we'll give you all the thanks and all the praise in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.